Hello, Trinity. Today we're going to be talking about faith, having a faith that's indestructible. I want to first welcome everyone that's here. Those that are watching live video streaming, we're so thankful that you're tuning in. Those that are in our chapel venue, can we let everybody know that's watching live video streaming that we appreciate them? Thanks for joining us. It's always a blessing. If you can't be in church, you're traveling, summer, vacations, what have you, you can always tune in. You can be a part of the service live. Well, we're back in the book of Acts. Remember, last weekend was Father's Day weekend. We took a break uh, from our study in the book of Acts. And uh, it was a great, great weekend, uh, Father's Day weekend last weekend. And just a praise report, uh, you know, the Lord led us after each service to have an altar call response uh, for those that uh, really believe that, that in that message they wanted to drive a stake down, they wanted to lay claim to a spiritual blessing in their life. We had close to 400 people in all of our services that responded to the Lord. Can we thank God for that? You may, be, may have been one of them. It was a, it's a powerful, powerful time. So we're back in the book of Acts. Now, those of you that were with us two weeks ago, remember we finished the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And uh, the, what happened in the second, seventh chapter of Acts is Stephen, uh, the first deacon and the first Christian martyr of the New Testament church, he preached a sermon. The longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts is in Acts 7. At the end of his sermon, they dragged him outside of town and they stoned him. Uh, so chapter 8, that's what has just occurred. And chapter 8 will introduce uh, a new character that we learned about at the end of the seventh chapter, Saul of Tarshish, who becomes the central figure of the rest of the book of Acts, his, his hatred for the cross of Christ, and then his conversion to Christ. So faith indestructible. I was thinking about, you know, things that are indestructible. A lot of times young people really feel and think that they are like indestructible destructible and uh, so I came across 10 things that are supposed to be indestructible uh, and we're gonna go into sending order starting with number 10 uh, number 10 it's called the embassy tactical pen they say that this thing is indestructible um, ladies just by the way FYI that would be a great gift for your husband birthday Father's Day something like that it's not only a pen it's like a weapon it could be used as a weapon uh, number nine is the Cavitzman Triggerfish bronze a2 watch this is a real watch it can withstand 10 pounds of C4 exploding next to it. Now, you won't survive, but your watch will if you have that watch. Uh, and then number eight is the tungsten ring. This is a, a wedding band that will last longer than... No, I won't say that. Uh, it's, it's a wedding band that will last as long as your marriage should last. Amen. Uh, number seven is their indestructible tires. Polaris uh, has these tires and uh, prototypes, and they're bulletproof, and uh, you'll never get a flat. Uh, they don't look too good, but, uh, you know, hey, they'd be good driving around with those. You're not going to have a flat. Um, and then number six, Lego bricks. I mean, you know, these things will they'll withstand a nuclear fallout. They will still be around. Um, and then number five, Tonka trucks. These things really are indestructible. Uh, if they only made real trucks that way. Anyway, here's the fourth one, the George Foreman grill. If you invested in one of these, it's, it's, it, it will do you good for the rest of your life. Uh, and then the third thing that they listed was this hurricane-proof monolithic dome home. If you live near hurricanes, I don't know if anybody could really afford that home, but that's the home you want. It's supposedly indestructible, okay? And then there's what's called a bulletproof public toilet. Yeah, you heard me right. Uh, you know, usually when you go to the restroom, public restroom, you're worried about running out of toilet paper in there. But uh, this, you don't have to worry about a bomb going off or people shooting at you because this 15-ton, $100,000 uh, public toilet will protect you. 
And the number one <clears throat> indestructible thing that I came across when I did my research on this was a uh, cast iron pan right there. Uh, your grandma had that, you have that, your kids will have that to the fifth generation, you know. But really, we know everything is destructible. Nothing is indestructible except our faith. Our faith that's based on the Word of God, the inspired, inherent, infallible, indestructible Word of God, our faith endures. Our faith is indestructible. You see, there was a guy by the name of Saul. He was a, a modern-day terrorist back in biblical times, and he was dead set on destroying the Christian message, destroying the New Testament church before it ever got, got uh, started. He consented to and celebrated the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church, and they thought this, if you don't like the message, kill the messenger. But you can kill the messenger, but you can't silence the message because the messenger may die, but the message lives on. And that's what we see as we come into the book of Acts chapter 8 now. And let's go to verse 1, Acts 8, 1. It says, in Saul... And I'm reading out of the Amplified Translation of the Bible. And Saul was not only consenting to Stephen's death, he was pleased and entirely approving. On that day, a great and severe persecution broke out against the church, which was in Jerusalem. So they thought, well, if we can kill Stephen, we can silence the message. But what happened was, as persecution broke out in Jerusalem, it goes on to say that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles who were the special messengers of, of God. So this persecution breaks out right after the death of, of Stephen, and it drives Christians out of Jerusalem. And where does it drive them? Judea and Samaria. Now, why is that significant? That's significant, significant because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus himself prophesied by saying this, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So this was the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy about Christians getting out of their comfort zone of Jerusalem and going to places like Judea, God-forsaken places like Samaria, and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. And here's the spiritual truth that, that I felt the Lord impressed on my heart from this story, this actual uh, story that played out 2,000 years ago, and it's this. God will ultimately get us where he wants us, even though he may choose to use certain routes or paths to get us there that we were not expecting. You see, they were supposed to be in places like Judea and Samaria. Perhaps they wouldn't have gotten there on their own, but because of the persecution, it drove them into those places. Let me give you another example. The Apostle Paul, his entire life, believed that the culmination of his ministry would conclude in Rome, that he was to go to Rome and preach Jesus Christ. Now, Paul thought he was going to go to Rome as a tourist. He ended up going to Rome, but not as a tourist, as a prisoner. He was in shackles, and he was taken to Rome. Did he end up ultimately where God wanted him to be? Yes, but not necessarily the way that he thought he would get there. Even Joseph in the Old Testament uh, had a dream in his heart from God, and he ends up in a place he never wanted to be, but it was Egypt. And while he was there, that's where God promoted him and blessed him so he could become second in command. 
So sometimes there may be a place that's in your heart, and if it's, if it's God's intention for you to be there, He definitely will get you there. It goes on in verse 2. A party of devout men with others helped to carry out and bury Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, when I came to verse 2, as I was studying and preparing this, this message, I thought everything in the Bible is there on purpose. Nothing is in the Bible accidentally. Nothing's in the Bible to simply take up space. So that's why we need to prayerfully meditate upon all that's written in Scripture and not just read past it very quickly. So when I came to verse 2, I said, Lord, what are you saying here? And here's what, what the Lord impressed on my heart. First of all, what just occurred? A significant event just occurred in chapter 7. Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church, was killed, was murdered, was stoned. So what next? Well, the, the story that Dr. Luke, you know, Luke was the one that wrote the book of Acts as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He could have just let us all forget about Stephen and move on to what's happening now in chapters 8, 9, 10, and, and the rest of the book of Acts, but he doesn't do that. He tells us that this great hero of the faith, this first martyr of the New Testament church, he deserved something. He deserved a decent burial. He deserved for his life and his legacy to be honored by those who were living. And that's why when a loved one dies, as Christians, uh, for thousands of years, and even before, and even in the Old Testament, those that followed the true and living God, the Jewish people, they always understood the importance of a, the, the rite of passage when a, a loved one goes on to be with the Lord. And that there should be a time of, of, of celebration, yes, but a time of grieving. And you can't just finish the story of Stephen and just like forget about it. it, it what happened was too important. So it says, a party of devout men were going to give him what he deserved, a decent, honorable burial. And now who are these devout men? Well, the Bible doesn't give us the names of these individuals, but it gives us a description of these men. They were devout men. So I, I pulled out my, you know, strong concordance. Actually, I actually have Bible software, and I has, all I have to do is double-click on the King James Version of the Bible in my, double, in my software, and poof, the strongest concordance comes up in my other Greek. It's pretty cool, right? And my other Greek dictionaries pull up, and I begin to investigate what this name, uh, what this word actually means. This word in the Greek is the Greek word eulabes. Eulabes is a Greek word, and and it's translated pious, godly, holy, or God-fearing. So here's what we know. We know that these men, at great personal risk, persecution was now ignited. It was now popular to kill Christians. Saul was, you know, on a vengeance to stomp out the church, the New Testament church. Yet these devout men, these brave, elite, special forces for God men, picked up the dead corpse of, of Stephen at great personal risk, carried it to a place of burial, and while they did, they made great lamentations. They wept aloud. It's very important as a Christian that when a loved one goes, that we do grieve in a godly way. We do mourn in a God. We know they're in a better place. They knew Stephen was in a better place, but they also knew this. They knew that this world had one less really good man in it. And the world was not going to be the same because this one devout follower of Jesus was taken from us prematurely. 
And so with great lamentations, they were carrying this body and they were, uh, they were honoring the death of this great man of God. And so I said, okay, are there other places in the Bible where this word for devout is used? It's used four times, three other times in the New Testament. And so I said, okay, let's look. Let's look at these other moments in the scriptures that this Greek word is only used four times. And it describes four different categories of men in the Bible. Okay, so the first time this Greek word was used to describe somebody who was devout, who was pious, who was godly, and who was God-fearing, the first time it's used, it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and verse 25, and it speaks about a man by the name of Simeon. Now, Simeon is an extraordinary character in your Bible and in my Bible. Simeon was an older man. He was up in age. And God made a personal promise to Simeon that he didn't make to anybody else at that time. Here's the beautiful thing. You know God can make a personal promise to you that's outside of Scripture? Follow me now. He can make a personal promise to you that's outside of Scripture. Now, any promise God ever makes to you would never in any way violate Scripture. But God gave Simeon a promise that wasn't found in the Bible. He personalized a promise for this one man, Simeon. And here's the promise. God promised Simeon he would be able to see the Savior of the world before he breathed his last breath, before he died. Here's what we know about Simeon. He was a devout man. He would go to the temple frequently, regularly, to worship God. But in Luke 2, on a, on a, on a, on a given day, at a specific time, the Holy Spirit spoke to Simeon. Older man, didn't have many days left. And the Holy Spirit said, get to the temple now. Simeon, thank God, because he was devout, thank God, he listened to the leading and the moving of the Holy Spirit, the impression of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. He gets up, he goes to the temple. No sooner does Simeon walk in the temple, guess who walks in to that same temple area? None other than Joseph and Mary carrying baby Jesus with them. And he was able to see the Savior with his own eyes. But not only that, he was able to hold Jesus in his arms. And then, it's recorded in Luke chapter 2, he spoke one of the most beautiful, uh, powerful, prophetic, poetic statements over being the one to hold and see the Savior of the world. How many know that God keeps his promises? And we're thankful for that. He's made some promises to you. He's made some promises to me. To be devout means to be like Simeon. We wait upon the Lord patiently for the fulfillment of his promises. And while we're doing so, we attend his house in a worshipful attitude. Okay, the second time this word is used, devout, it describes in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Jewish men that assembled in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, what's significant about that? Well, in Leviticus 23, 21, it was required if you were a follower of Jehovah, follower of God, and a, a Jew, at least three of the seven feasts that, that Israel celebrated, it was required for you to attend. So at great personal price, at great personal cost, those who didn't live in Jerusalem 
had to travel to Jerusalem. And on the, uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, there were many devout Jews that came to Jerusalem. We know in the thousands, in the tens of thousands. And they came to Jerusalem to fulfill Holy Scripture out of their devotion and worship of, of the true and living God. They were devout, God-fearing men who accepted the holy commands of God and lived them out. So what does it mean to be devout? Like Simeon? It means that we attend the house of God and we wait patiently to see Jesus with our own eyes. Number two, like the Jewish men here uh, mentioned in Acts 2.5, it means whatever the personal cost is, we are with God's people worshiping God regularly. The third time this word is mentioned, it describes these men in Acts chapter 2, verse 8. And what's de- what was devout about these men? They buried Stephen at great personal risk, and they did it with great lamentations. Now, now what does that mean? Here, here's what it means to me. Let's say Stephen is a metaphor for all of us living today, a metaphor for truth and righteousness being killed. There's a verse in the book of Isaiah that says, truth has been slain in the streets. Truth has been murdered in the streets. We see in the streets of America, we see the death of truth. We see the death of common sense. We, I have witnessed, I'm a man of the, of the 20th century, that I was dragged into the 21st century kicking and screaming. I'm a man of the 20th century. I was born in 1963. I personally have witnessed the death of a Christian nation. You, many of you have also witnessed that. Many of you young people uh, don't understand the, the, the magnitude of what, of what has occurred in America over the last several years. But we are witnessing the death of a once Christian nation. That, I'm, not, I'm still an optimist. I'm still hopeful. Uh, there's still a thing called revival. And, and, and God's not limited by, by the sin of a nation or the, a nation's rejection of him. So I know there's still hope for my nation and for your nation and for our nation. But we're witnessing the death of Christianity. And we should do so not silently. Not silently. Now, how many know there are times in life that you may express yourself and there's nothing wrong with that but what you're excited about is really of no consequence follow me now <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> follow me now okay so this past sunday was the the seventh game in the nba championship basketball championship right and so me and my sons were downstairs watching the game and uh, my oldest son and i nathan we were rooting for the cleveland cavaliers my youngest son jonathan was uh, rooting for Golden State Warriors, okay? Poor him. Pray for him. So the game was like intense, back and forth, back and forth, and in the fourth quarter, and you know, if you were watching that game, oh man, you know, Kyrie Irving made a three, like wow, with seconds left in the game, and there was this defensive play, blah, 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 and you know, and then a free throw was made, and boom, the buzzer goes off, and they won. As soon as the Cleveland Cavaliers won, my son and I, Nathan, we realized that we were witnessing history being made. No team has ever come back from a 3-1 deficit and won a championship like that. But the Cleveland Cavaliers, we started to jump and scream and yell. And we went to the ground. We hit the ground. And we're like, yeah, yeah. My wife thought we lost our minds. What's going on down there? They just won like she could care less. Now, you could probably care less. I got you. There are some things in life that... We get all excited about and then they, at the end of the day, they really don't matter. 
That game didn't make my life any better. I didn't win any money on it because I don't bet. I work too hard for my money to gamble. That, that, that game didn't make my marriage any better. Now, for a moment, it made me feel good. And how many know in life you need to have moments like that where you just feel really, really good? And it might be over something as silly as a basketball game. Are you with me? Because the best revenge is to live well. As you see our world on fire and our world around us falling apart, the best revenge is just live your life to its fullest and live your life well and love those around you and love God and love life and live your life well. That's the least you and I could do even though the world is burning around us. You're like, wow, that's real pessimistic, Pastor Carl. No, just open your eyes, okay? But there's hope. All right, so there are moments that are quite significant where there should be a reaction from God's people other than, oh, well, who cares? No biggie. You know what I'm talking about? Stephen's dead. They're carrying his body. They're doing it with great lamentations. I believe we should grieve with great lamentations over the death of truth in our country and over the death of Christianity in our country and the glorification and celebration of sin in our land. I think we should have a reaction from God's people. Are you with me? So check it out. I'm reading through, you know, the Bible in, in my devotional reading, and I finished Ezra, finished Nehemiah, I'm in Job now. But I remember when I was reading through Ezra, Ezra I remember an episode of what happened in the history of Israel. So here's the history of Israel. They're living for God, then they start to neglect God, forget about God, stray from God, go back in their old sinful ways, go deep in sin, deeper in sin, in rebellion. Because they're in rebellion, God loves them, he disciplines them. Oh, they feel the pain of God's judgment. They feel the God. They're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Like, no, you shouldn't be doing this. Oh, I want to come back to God. Yes, he wants you to come back to God. But he, and he loves me. Yes, he loves you. So we repent and we come back to God. And he receives us. He restores us. He renews us. He revives us. And we're back on the mountain peak of prayer and worship of God. And we're feeling good and we're doing good. But then we start to neglect our, our, our way, our, our life serving, of serving God. And we get to seat back into sin. And we go back into rebellion. And as we go back into rebellion, God loves us and because God loves us, he has to judge us. So he judges us. He disciplines us. And we're like, oh, that's painful. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I'm far from God. Oh, yeah, you need to repent. Oh, I know. I need to repent. I need to come back to God. Will he receive me? Yes, he loves you. So we repent. We come back to God. He renews us. He restores us. He revives us, right? And, and then we get back to the mountain peak of living good for God, and we begin to forget God, and we start going, are you following me? That's the history of the nation of Israel. That's the history of so much of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. So this is happening in the nation of Israel. It's during the time of Ezra. Now, who's Ezra? Ezra was a priest, a scribe. He was an awesome dude, a great Bible teacher. And Ezra was commissioned by God to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed. The children of Israel had been in bondage for 70 years because they disobeyed God, and they started to repent and come back to Israel. God was beginning to restore them. So the first thing to be restored was the temple worship. So Ezra was led by God to rebuild the temple. His contemporary, Nehemiah, came after him was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem where the temple of God was. So in the days of Ezra, Ezra discovers that during their times of backsliding, the Jewish men were marrying pagan women. They were marrying Moabite women. You see, if you're single and you want to be married one day, you should only marry in the Lord. The Bible admonishes us to only marry a Christian. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You're like, oh, Pastor Carl, but this, this guy I'm dating or this girl I'm dating, they, they really love me, I really love them, you know, and, and we'd really make good babies together, whatever. <laughs> and, but they don't know Jesus. Don't marry him. That's God's will. God's best will. Don't. Oh, okay, now, now you may be somebody else. You may be like, Pastor Carl, that was me, and I did marry them. Well, there's still hope. Pray that they get saved. But it's not going to be easy. 
Okay? So it's always best to obey God. Do it God's way because God's way is the best way. Turn your name and tell him God's way is the best way. Go on, tell him God's way. Help me preach today. <laughs> God's way is the best way. So they're marrying outside of the will of God. They're marrying these pagan Moabite women. So you know what Ezra does? He finds out. Look at this. Look at Ezra 9.3. This news made me so angry that I ripped my clothes, tore my hair from my head and beard, and then I just sat there in shock. I mean, no, that's a reaction. That's a proper reaction for a serious matter. I don't know if I'd go that far. Ripping my clothes, I could pulling your hair out. This is precious stuff, you know. I mean, it didn't come very easy, right? You just leave it in there. Beard, I don't even have a beard. But he was so moved by this sin, so grieved by it, that's what his response was. Okay, fast forward. Now it's Nehemiah. His contemporary, years later, the walls are being, have been rebuilt, the temple's rebuilt. There's been a great revival, by the way, great revival. But once again, now they're on the decline, back into bondage, back into sin, back into probably judgment, okay? So Nehemiah finds out that they're doing the exact same thing, marrying these pagan women. So here's how he responds. So I confronted them. I called down curses on them. I beat some of them. I would like to have a pastor like that. (laughs) Where were you last Sunday? How come you haven't been given your tithes? You know, give me some of that. Now, Nehemiah got smart. He learned from Ezra. Don't pull out your own hair. Pull out your mem- the members of your church's hair. <laughs> Aren't you glad we're not under the Old Testament any longer? Right? So <laughs> I beat some of them, pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. That's how Nehemiah reacted to truth being murdered in the streets to the glorification of sin and the celebration of wickedness in his land. That's what it means to be devout. Now, the final time this word devout is used, it's used for a guy by the name of Ananias. Now, Ananias is mentioned in Acts 9, but he's, he's mentioned in Acts twenty two twelve, 12, and Paul's kind of reminiscing about his personal testimony of coming to faith in Christ. Who's Ananias? He was a devout follower of Jesus. How devout was he? So devout that right after Saul of Tarshish got saved, God spoke to Ananias to go and pray for Saul because he was blind temporarily and he needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Ananias says, uh, God, Saul of Tarshish, are you sure you got, you got the right guy? I've heard really bad things about him. He's like, he's one of us now. So Ananias obeys the, the leading of the Lord. He goes and he prays for Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. He received his sight and he received the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be a devout man? These, these devout men, it means what Simeon meant. It, it, it means what the, the Jews that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast meant. It meant what these devout men in Acts 8, grieving over the death of Stephen or us grieving over the death of truth in our times. And it's what Ananias, he was a soul winner. and He was willing to help mentor the next generation of young Christians that were new to the faith. And that's what it means, gentlemen, men, young men, in service today, and ladies, but primarily men, that's what it means to be one of God's elite special forces in these last days, to be a devout, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to ask all the men to do something in here, and those watching live video streaming or, or, or those that are in our, in our chapel venue, I'm going to ask you to do something, and I'm asking your permission. You don't have to do this, but I felt impressed to do this in every one of our services since last night and our other two previous services today. I've had 
the men in our church do this. So I'm going to ask your permission. I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I want you to stand to your feet. All the men, young men, you don't have to, but if you're the only one sitting, positive peer pressure, you're going to want to stand. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'm saying. And I want us to make a pledge to God, a pledge that we would be like these devout, devout men in Acts 8, like Simeon, like the Jews that came to worship at the temple uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, and like Ananias. So I want you to put your hand on your heart. I want you to say this after me. Dear God in heaven, I humbly come before you today. You know my shortcomings, my failings, my sins, my weaknesses, but I love you, and I want to love you more. And I want to be a devout man, not a deceptive man, not a duplicitous man, but a devout man. I pray by the blood of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your grace and by your mercy, day by day, you would make me into a devout man, into a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, to represent Christ to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my generation, to stand for truth and to stand for righteousness, motivated by the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's thank the Lord together. Can we do that? You may be seated. Thank you. So the story continues in verse 3 now of Acts 8. It says, But Saul shamefully treated and laid waste the church continuously with cruelty and violence, and entering house after house, he dragged out men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered abroad went about through the land from place to place preaching the glad tidings, the good news, the gospel, which is the word, the doctrine concerning the attainment through Christ and only Christ of salvation in the kingdom of God. So, you know, whenever there have been those that have tried to stop the, the advancement of the church of Jesus Christ in the earth and in the world, they've always failed. And the more severe they attack it, the more powerful it seems that the church becomes. Saul was a modern-day terrorist. Saul laid waste. He ravaged. He made havoc. This Greek word for havoc, it was a word that was used in the time of Jesus describing wild boars who trample and lay waste the ground beneath them. And so this metaphorically meant that Saul was dedicated to disgrace, to insult with indignity, to destroy, as Barclay in his New Testament commentary says, with bloody sadistic cruelty. This Saul of Tarshish was determined to destroy the Christian movement before it ever got off the ground. And yet, it didn't stop. It accelerated the growth of the church. It accelerated the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how many know there is a spirit of Saul that's still alive in the world today? There's this hatred and this animosity for Jesus, for Christianity. How Christianity is assaulted and disrespected and trampled and, and uh, ridiculed in pop culture, in society today, 
It's beyond comprehension. No other religion, no other world religion is treated the way Christianity is treated in Western civilization, which was basically founded and built upon Christianity. So who was Saul of Tarsus before he became the great apostle Paul? I want to give you, in closing, the resume of a hater. Because Saul of Tarsus was a hater. Who was he? Well, his background, he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia was a Roman province in Southeast Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, by the way. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was the Hebrew of Hebrews. This meant that genealogy, his genealogy was traceable back to Abraham, both maternally and paternally, both through his mother and his father. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. This is his own testimony and witness in scriptures. He was born a Roman citizen. Uh, his birth date is not known, probably around the same time of that of Jesus. Their paths probably crossed in the temple. His education, he was one of the most intelligent, brilliant men that's ever lived. He was educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, a highly respected Pharisee and teacher of the law. Uh, Saul was an exceptional Pharisee. He excelled beyond all of his contemporaries, which meant he was highly competitive. He was the best at what he did. He had skills outside of his intellect and outside of his religious training. He was an accomplished tent maker, he tells us. His character, he was a zealot who persecuted Christians concerning the law, blameless. He served God, though, out of a pure conscience. All that he did, he thought he was doing out of his love for God, even though he was wrong. He said he did it ignorantly. He blasphemed and persecuted the church. His experience, well, he was present at the death of the first Christian martyr. He was an accessory and accomplice to murder, consenting to the death of Stephen. He entered homes and he dragged out men and women and put them into prison, destroying families. Entire he entered synagogues and arrested and abused those who trusted in Jesus as Messiah and Lord and Savior. He possessed a single-minded focus to destroy the church. And yet God, in his mercy, recruited him. You see, Saul of Tarshish was on the wrong team. He was working for the wrong master, like many of you once did, like I once did, like maybe some of you right now. You're on the wrong team. You're working for the wrong master. God in his mercy selected, recruited, chose the Saul of Tarshish to become the hands-down most influential human being that's ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. Because Saul of Tarsus became the great Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was the principal figure to spread the message of Messiah around the world. And it all turned one day in Acts chapter 9 when he jumped on his horse. He had papers in hand riding to Damascus called the Road to Damascus to continue to persecute Christians and spew forth his hatred for Jesus. When on that road to Damascus, Jesus met him, knocked him off his high horse. He ended up flat on his back. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. And Saul said these words, Lord, who are you? <laughs> the one that you'd been hating on 
the one that you've been determined to destroy. But I'm calling you into my service. Everything changed. Saul went from being a hater of Jesus to being a lover of Jesus. Saul went from wanting to destroy the church to wanting to build the church up. Much later on in his life, Paul was writing to young Timothy, a young protege that he was mentoring. And Paul, in his own words, says this about his conversion. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning, beginning in verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. I want you to pick up, and I want you to start reading out loud with me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Paul said, everyone should accept this. Jesus Christ came into this world not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners. And he said, I know, because I was the absolute worst of them all. I don't deserve to bear his name. I don't deserve to be a part of his kingdom. I don't deserve to preach this message. I don't deserve to be used the way that he has chosen to use me. I was the worst of the worst. I don't know how far and how deep into sin you've gone. I don't know how bad off you are, but here's what I do know. There's no one in the sound of my voice that is a worse sinner today than the Apostle Paul was 2,000 years ago. And he's saying this, if God can save me in his mercy and grace and change me, he can save and change any one of you. There's hope for that wife who's married to an unsaved, ungodly husband. There's hope for that husband, that Christian husband, who's married to an unsaved, ungodly wife. There's hope for those Christian parents who see their kids going deeper and deeper into sin and away from God. There's hope because the worst among us is not beyond the reach of the best of God's love and grace that's reaching out to people. Can we thank him for that? Paul goes on to say in verse 16, read it out loud with me. That God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul said, if God could do it for me, he could do it for any one of you. And there's no one beyond hope. If there's breath in your lungs, there's hope in your future. And Jesus can save you. Now, Paul, he got so caught up in this moment when he was writing, so filled with spiritual ecstasy, so filled and enraptured with excitement in his heart that he couldn't stop there. He continued and he entered into what's called a doxology. So here's what I want you and I to do. I want us to read verse 17, but we got to read it with gusto. We got to read it with passion. We got to read it with feeling. We got to feel this, okay? It's like your favorite team just won a championship, all right? Or for that year, your favorite team. And, and, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Here we go. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, 
the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Come on, let's thank God together. He alone is God. The only thing that's indestructible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who put their faith and trust in him, you will last forever because his kingdom will last forever. And Paul went from hating Jesus to declaring that Jesus was God, the eternal King. One more time, can we thank God for his amazing grace, for his amazing love, that he can save the worst of sinners among us. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today. We thank you for this lesson. We thank you for this message. And now, Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit personalize it in each of our hearts and lives. May each of us here today, those in the sound of my voice, say, Lord, what would you have me do with this message? How do you want me to apply it in my life? And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can know his love, grace, and forgiveness. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here today and one time you were on fire for the Lord and you were serving him, but you've strayed away from him, you can come home. He's calling you back into relationship and fellowship with him. You can rededicate your life to Christ. Say this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. More importantly, mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?